Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us uh, for our little space tonight. Uh, we'll be talking about the media um, space and the disruption that our industry is facing. And of course, in all its many, many forms, positive or negative, Mwango Capital very uh, generously decided to host us for this conversation. But today, I'll get around to introducing um, our panelists in, in just a moment. But uh, first, I guess we should uh, have a quick word in from some of the team at Mwango Capital. Sood? Hi, uh, thanks, Roma, and thanks for uh, gracing us with your presence on this very lovely uh, evening in Nairobi. So the topic today is on uh, media and the media landscape being disrupted, and specifically with a context in Africa. And, you know, this is a topic that I think, Rama, we've discussed several times. And I actually remember this was probably a decade back at a coffee shop at the IS Center, kind of going through the way the landscape is changing and our local media entities actually prepared and fast track almost 10 years later, some things have changed, some things haven't changed. And we hope to discuss quite a bit of those today with our very well-qualified panelists and looking forward to having very good conversations with them. So over to the panelists to introduce themselves. Maybe Rama, you can prompt them. Yeah, definitely. So just to give um, our, our listeners an overview of what they should expect today, we have Rosebel Kagumira, she's joining us on this particular panel. You'll hear a lot more details about what they do, where they are currently in the media space, and the main things, the key meta trends, the, the tech issues, uh, the personal and the culture issues that they're having to deal with in their spaces. We also happen to have Claire Muradi. She's head of marketing at Betkin Kenya, but she's here because... She used to be part of the digital team at Nation Media Group. We also happen to have Wanjala Were, who's the founder of Ke. So all you sports fans out there will certainly have heard or read of content that he has put together. But first, let me start with, with opening comments and introductions of where you are at the moment in the media industry. Rosebell, shall we start with you? Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm the editor for an online platform called African Feminism where we do analysis and uh, commentary on African feminist uh, struggles and daily stories from different African feminist writers. So I've worked in the main media in Uganda and have worked for international media. I still do or analysis for different international media. Thank you. All right, then. Rosebel Kagamiri, thank you very much. Claire, would you like to go next? Absolutely. Good evening, everyone. My name is Claire Morethi. I go by the small phrase, the brand titan. I'm here, rightfully so. I was part of the digital transformation team as a marketing manager at the Nation Media Group. I'm super passionate still about media, even though I am at betting right now. I am a lover of content, an avid subscriber to everything digital subscriptions on media that could offer. So super excited to be here to share my insights. Asante Sana. Mr. Were, you're next. Talk to us about your current endeavors within the media space. Good evening, everyone. Mwanjala Were, founder Tisini. Tisini is a media tech company which um, uses football to tell stories and create innovations. I've been in the media space, having worked with several organizations, including Nation, Standard, African Censored. I'll be maybe more about how the media can learn from different industries such as betting. Nice to see you, Claire. And also other technological spaces. Thanks. All right. Perfect. Once upon a time when I was a very young human being and I was trying to get into the media space, when I finally got into undergrad and I remember looking at the course outline and they're basically describing things as 
if you're going to go through this course, eventually you're going to end up either as a print journalist or as a broadcast journalist. And those almost seem to be two completely different worlds. Fast forward to 2021, and the media landscape is hugely different. If you had said in 2006 that we would have had an environment where, for example, Instagram uh, would be the place where key stories of interest would be broken, as we saw, for example, with BNN, with respect to the attack on Mr. Morko's nieces at Ola Sereni, or a whole host of other things that are essentially being discussed first online. If you told us that back in 2006, would have laughed you right out of town. Not anymore this time round. The landscape is changing very quickly around our feet. And the question, I guess, would be to start with you, John Allen, a man who really shouldn't have to introduce to our audience. You've been in the trenches for a very long period of time. You've seen all these changes happening in corporate media and outside corporate media. What is the one key trend that's disrupting our industry for you? Thanks a lot, Rama, and to all of the speakers who are here. Rama, that's a, that's a big question. because I don't think it's just one thing. And I'm going to borrow from a class I've just left. I think the one thing that's disruptive in media is the different use cases for technology and how that has, has disrupted how we earn our revenues, how we tell our stories, where we break our stories, who's listening to our stories, and most importantly, what impact our stories are having. When we were in a newsroom together, it would have been nearly laughable. To, you know, someone with a Twitter page or, or Instagram, you know, an Instagram for modest Instagram following, you have this kind of thing. But I think what technology has done is that it's given people the opportunity just to be able to communicate directly with, uh, with broadcasters, communicate broadly with uh, media owners and, and uh, people who work within the media, but also to become producers themselves and centers of information. I think what that has also done is that it's allowed for different kinds of niches to, to develop and for people to find their, their community, find their tribe online. So being able to coordinate all of these different changes and try and figure out where you are, who you're speaking to, and how you're going to be able to impact their lives, but also allow them to open their pocketbooks for you. Is, is a difficult thing. Yeah, absolutely. Because when you speak of, of specific niches that we have found and that tech has essentially allowed us to build out, Rosebell, I think your experience, especially in the verticals that you occupy, that essentially speaks to the promise of the tech, essentially not acting as, as a negative influence on our industry, but essentially as a positive one, doesn't it? Thank you. I would like to build on what John Adam has said. Definitely as a young journalist in a newsroom in Uganda, having worked for Uganda leading Daily Monitor, and then I moved to Nation TV at starting it in Uganda, I was shocked as a young journalist that the TV had no web page. Trust me, this is like 2008, and we're trying to push management actually open a web page for a TV. At the time I had a blog, I was already blogging. I already had an online voice through my blog because of my experience from the media the media hierarchy in the newspaper newsroom was that if you were a young journalist, you couldn't have an opinion, really. The opinion pages are occupied by senior 
there's this hierarchy that was there. And as a young journalist, I felt like I needed the space to say something. And for me, online spaces at the time, blogs were were big. And as somebody who took up really social media in the earliest forms, you always found like there were no journalists. They never saw this as the space. And coming from that 15 years from now and how much this has changed, how everybody now, you wake up, you go to Twitter. We have to reflect on how technology has forced I saw it was by force because I was in the newsroom. I saw people resisting and not seeing the future. So it's very important that newsrooms have people who can look at, predict trends and what is happening. And yet this was happening elsewhere in the world, but we were very slow in adapting to it until we are like forced to be in the space. And when you come to a space, when you're forced there, rather than having hindsight and really planning on how are we moving into this space, it becomes very different. So it took some time for the media to really fit in this space. And a lot of media is not yet fitting in this space, indeed. Uh, they're just chasing, but really our media sitting and planning and like, this is the main place. This is the public square. Social media has become the public square. You have to see what is the role of the media initially and how the public has changed, how the audience has changed, what the audience wants, but also what the audience can know and could know before you. So that kind of relationship has changed because of access to technologies by this, the very audience you're trying to serve. So it's very important to reflect on not just within the media, but how the media is forced then to adapt and how voices are emerging that are competing with what the media used to serve and how does the media work with those voices. I look right. at movements or those movements that are happening. How do we actually as media adopt to the changing terrain that there are so many other people who could serve what we do. Yeah, thank you. Okay, right. So, Claire, and, and this is me speaking from the perspective of, of the young guy who was in a newsroom once upon a time in KTN, and we had these huge fights with management where they basically said, you, you young people are just wasting your time on, on Facebook and Twitter. What are these updates you're putting up over there? And that was around 2010. But... As I've grown older, there's an element of nuance that comes in when you understand some of the positions that managers tend to be in. It's not 100% of blankets, um, cop-outs on their part. But could you bring the management perspective into this? Do we unfairly slate media managers for just being too slow to adapt? Or do we not have a proper understanding of the sort of risks um, and options that they have to consider when they're going to the board and saying, yeah, you know, there's this thing called building out a, a Facebook page or a Twitter page or a website with digital media presence, and we need funding to build that out. Are we being 100% unfair on managing? Absolutely not. It's been scary, and I can only imagine. So if you think about possibly a 50-year-old who's an editor, no offense to guys in their 50s, and having to hear about this change that's coming, uh, huge, fast, and furious, there's, there's two things to do. To do it no, or no not to do it. Up. I have found myself in positions where management is absolutely to blame. One, for the pace. And two, for just not understanding. And the way I see it is digital did come for everyone. Digital is coming for everyone. So it's really about how ready are you? You possibly may not have seen it and that's fine. But are you willing to listen when a kid who's possibly 25 years old comes up to you and say, yo, we're being slaughtered alive on Instagram by, let's say, Pulse Live Kenya. And our Instagram page is possibly dead on arrival. Are we willing to listen? Chances are not. But I'm seeing a lot of movement within the last two years. I just think it's a decade late. I just genuinely think it's a decade late. This is what I say. You innovate or you die. 
and will attend the funeral period, whether it's media or not. Wanzala, from your perspective, how are we handling that adaptation, specifically for the vertical you're in? Because sports content is consumed hugely across East Africa. And the tech has essentially opened us up to have these conversations with very focused audiences. You want to talk about rugby in East Africa? There's a group for that. You want to talk about Formula One? You want to talk about soccer? You want to talk about the Tanzanian League? You want to talk about the Kenyan Premier League with all its funny shenanigans? There's a group for that. But are we really fully exploiting these opportunities? No, we are not. Because the media is not adapt, especially the local scene. Okay, with the EPL, you can find... People are adapting very fast, but in the local scene, Kenyan scene and African scene, one of the things that we're not doing as much is trying to really go in depth and trying to dig into some of these facts. For example, I can give you an example where we follow and collect data on the local Kenya Premier League games. And so we report from a database perspective. We tell stories of the Kenya Premier League game from a data perspective and we tell it also from a strategic perspective. So one of the things we've realized is that Kenyan coaches are very smart, but we've been telling their stories from a a data and strategy perspective where the coaches adapt and change based on their opponents. But that is not being told in mainstream media, but globally you can find in the sports industry, data has changed everything. But in Africa and, um, okay, in Kenya, let me just speak from the Kenyan perspective. We're not looking at it from that data-driven aspect of telling sports. And so one of the things is you find the older journalists are very hard to adapt. But when you get the younger journalists from the universities and then you train them about the culture, you find they adapt faster. So that's one of the things that maybe we really need to look at and, and see how to bridge that gap where we have journalists now who all round and can adapt to very fascinating. Indeed. Um, Sood, um, you, you've also worked essentially in the industry for quite a while. Please share, share your experience and perspective. Uh, yeah, and I think I, I resonate with both what Roosevelt and, and Claire say. And I've been fortunate enough to work on both sides, you know, being the young person working in a major international broadcast and trying to bring new ideas and shut down the management. And then rising through the ranks of management and getting at least some of the keys to the prized assets and reinventing at least how media is done for the digital age. And see, the reality is, the bigger the organization, and this is just from a management point of view, the difficult it is to turn, and people don't know what they don't know, right? So you have executives, and then you have like a board that you have to report to, and some of these guys don't quite understand. But then again, look at the speed at which technology has changed. And Roseville just given us her perspective from Uganda. And when you look at Uganda as a country, everyone's like, oh, this little tiny country and everything else. You know, do they even have internet? Do they consume information on internet? And they have this very weird form of government. And, you know, there's a lot of self-censorship and the issues with civil liberties. But, you know, Ugandans are out there. They're on the internet. They raise their voices. They engage. There is an active audience. Or another country could be, you know, having worked at a major international broadcaster, we had access to data in terms of consumption habits. And one of the most interesting pieces of data that came out, and YouTube actually published this data, was from Saudi Arabia, saying that Saudi Arabia, they are the biggest producers of YouTube content and second biggest consumers per capita. It's the other way around. But their consumption and producing habits are way up on the top. And you're like, this is supposed to be like a conservative country and everything is controlled and everything else. And it turns out that when the internet gives people that 
agency to express themselves. Whether it's censorship or not, whether civil liberties are curtailed or not, people find a way and they find a way in their own subcultures and in their own ways of expressing themselves to get the word out. Now, when it comes to management, okay, so most media organizations are regulated in in one way or another. So this change always takes a a bit slow. You'd always find the innovation coming in from smaller firms or a group of people working part-time or from their bedrooms and producing this really good content and it goes viral and they're able to resonate. But where most established media organizations have failed is they're not able to move fast enough. And, and I'm clear that in the case of Kenya, you know, this should have happened a decade ago because it was clear by 2008, 2009, actually even in 2007, when post-election violence happened and a lot of the information was then sourced by SMS because people are just messaging each other and saying, okay, this is what is happening in our localities and whatnot. We're not, it, the, there was a little bit of a delay. Or the classic example where the news will be broken by an international broadcaster, yet the indigenous media entities do have boots on the ground, do have the resources, but nobody is bold enough to take that call, whether it's self-censorship or someone has put in a little bit of pressure and everyone's like, okay, let's wait. So let's wait for BBC to lead with the story and then we'll follow. Let's wait for Al Jazeera to lead with the story and then we'll follow. And it's, it's unfortunate, but and this whole thing of framing narratives, owning narratives, and we are seeing some semblance of hope in part of the continent. But now you're looking at your big media entities, the ones that have access to distribution, have access to sources. They can get whoever they want to to provide content or to provide context. And they've got access to resources, which is human resources, money for deployment, equipment and whatnot. They're busy waiting and literally the breakfast is being taken. And you're seeing this in sports. We're seeing it in news to a certain extent. And the reality is the companies and the big media conglomerates have been extremely slow. And and I don't think it's a problem unique to Africa. You're seeing it elsewhere. If News Corp did have sports, they would not be relevant. But then, you know, they're relying on sports now to remain relevant. And they have like somewhat of a monopoly or they have an unfair advantage in terms of how the sports rights are handed over to them. But then again, you look on the flip side, an organization like New York Times, their digital transformation took almost a decade, and the results only came in five years in. And this is over a 100-year-old organization, and they were able to do it. So if the New York Times can do it, then as old as they are, and they have their legacy of legacy, they set the standard in print, and then they kind of set the standard in in web in one way or another, at least for text content, and they're doing a lot of investigative stuff and visually investigative stuff and coming up with lots of new formats that are tech-driven, and they've been able to make that transformation. So if New York Times are able to do it, I think... From my point of view, if people put their their right minds together and that they are mission-driven in terms of serving the audience. And the reason why New York Times had to do it and why BBC is still in this transition phase is the audience has shifted. And if you're not addressing the needs of the audience, then you'll soon be out of the market. Indeed. Which brings me to, I guess, the fundamental question of it, because journalism is not free. It's not, and I mean this in an economic sense, good journalism costs money, it costs time, it costs energy, right? So the question then becomes, who should pay for it, number one? And number two, and this is an argument that I know we've been having in some newsrooms, at least in this country, because we tend to look at at, at the New York Times, as you said, and other Western organizations as sort of models for how that digital transformation can or cannot be done. 
But with respect to our specific context, if you look at a country like Kenya, where you take home monthly salaries, the better part of $300, right? At what point do you price a product? How do you price a product that is affordable, that will fit into that willingness to buy sphere for the audience that you're targeting? John Allen, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, sure. And I'll come in to say that I, I currently don't have any answers, but what we have are experiments that we are attempting. I think experiments so. are brilliant. We'll take all the experiments we can. <laughs> all right. Then, then uh, hold on to your hat. Eh? Okay. So I, I think about this question on a different number of levels. Generally, there's a general public need to know, right? And information, if you look at it as a public good, then therefore must be paid for or underwritten in some part by the public. And this is why national broadcasters are important. National broadcasters that are funded through tax and, and, and that sort of thing are important for produ- providing a baseline of credible, factual information to everybody, right? And then where the market then now comes is in the kinds of interests that people pursue. I, I, I tend to look at it that way, even if you look at it from a product point of view. And this is where I think different models on how to get audiences to pay interesting but it boils down to a number of things, at least from where we sit right now and the, the kinds of experiments that we are doing. It boils down to value, boils down to consistency. And as Sud said, you have to be mission-driven. There has to be something that's driving the editorial you know, guidelines that you use, the stories that you select. And finally, it's also having that entrepreneurial uh, mindset that you must be able to iterate and change as quickly as possible. Now... I think as someone who's sort of dipped my toes in this for a few years now, I can tell you the the story of the independent or the alternative newsroom is is one that's sung very loudly and with rose-tinted glasses. But we experience a lot of the same problems that mainstream and legacy media have in being able to do a number of, of these things. First of all, because you're stressed for cash you have to figure out ways of being able to keep the lights on. And therefore, what that means is that there'll always be pressure to divert from your mission to be able to pay for the the lights and and make the nearest buck. Resisting that is difficult. Secondly, is being able to learn all of these new skills. And I think that's something we don't often acknowledge as much. Because technology changes quickly and because in as much as Kenya and East Africa and perhaps Africa are slow adapters to the changes that have been taking place, especially in tech that enables us to be able to tell stories differently, it really isn't a change. Sometimes it boils down to, you know, people, as Sud said, not knowing what they don't know and being afraid of, of, of change, being able to inculcate that sense of change and that appetite for new things and the ability to experiment. As my lecturer in a, a few, th- about 30 minutes said, fail and celebrate failure is an, an altogether different beast, but that's also something that you must contend with. And then I think finally is the question of value. What is valuable to your audience and how do they demonstrate that value? Do they demonstrate it through likes and shares and follows? And then how then do you turn it into something that can be monetized? What kinds of services do you deliver? So I'll end with an example of something that we're trying to so we noticed that whereas with our journalism, it often takes a lot of time to produce, sometimes a number of months, and, and pages will be inactive. We did a number of things, not just to fill the time, but to try and sort of like break down our journalism into composite parts. 
that can still be valuable to audiences on a day-to-day -day basis. We then also started to curate this for our audiences in newsletters. And finally, we had to do something that was fairly painful but necessary, which is invest in another business that we are hoping to drive revenue towards our main business and our main mission, which is to create valuable, impactful public interest content. Now, you see, that's one answer. But you go to the New York Times, you go to Bloomberg, you go to any one of these media houses, and they'll have a completely different set of answers depending on the kind of metrics that are being produced from their data and also the, the audience viewership or readership habits. So it's really, uh, if I could use one word, it's attentiveness. If you have your eyes on the prize, then there'll be money to be made. But it's being able to manage a different number of skills. Let me stop there. Indeed. And, and, and I'm going to come to you, Rosebell and, and Claire, on that particular question, the money question, because it's a product that we're trying to produce that's not essentially free. But now one quick follow up on that. Do you, do you ever get the sense that perhaps, given the fact that we're essentially working in a digital first world, a digital first environment where we're trying to get our content out on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube, to put it bluntly, do you ever feel like you're trapped by the algorithm? Because that's something you don't get to control, right? And yet your entire business, your ability to make money to some extent is dependent on this external factor that's some bits of code that's being generated by a bunch of guys in, in California. For sure. I mean, and I mean, I think this is where these fang companies are, 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 have a huge advantage and, and they must be brought to heel in a sense. One through perhaps fairer practices, but the other through competition. And, and this is something that's stressed again and again in some of the classes that we are at. We also have to be able to build our own machinery that allows for us to then drive these algorithms in our direction a little bit. Some, sometimes it, it can be a bit frustrating and also a little hopeless to, to complain about the algorithms that dictate where our traffic goes rather than do something about it. Now, again, this also sounds extremely naive coming from someone with a small little engine that could media house, right? But the point that I'm trying to make is that we must do both. We must be able to figure out ways of telling Google or getting Facebook to understand that if we are publishing on your platform, then that is content that we are delivering onto your platform. There must be a way that we can also be able to monetize it or be seen at first instance without you driving things simply because people like this or people like that or you want to generate new interests in certain places. And I guess it's a much bigger question than this one conversation can contend with because there's elements of net neutrality, et cetera, et cetera, that we need to speak about. But that definitely is something that we always feel. But we can't be helpless about it. We have to do something. Our content will continually just get lost in the stream of, of billions and billions of pieces of content that are generated on a daily basis. Indeed. And, and hopefully, just before I get into the q and I think we'll, we'll also probably touch on the whole question of astroturfing, people running these uh, very aggressive disinformation ops that we saw in response to some of your work on the Pandora Papers. And of course, as we're seeing now yeah. with respect to the question of the conflict in Ethiopia as well. But Claire, let's get to you. The money question. How do we build models of business that work? It's a great question. So here's the thing. I always ask, are Kenyans willing to pay for content? Majority, I'm sure, here will say no. Some of you will say yes. But we're the same who are paying for Netflix. We're paying for 
show max if i may just interrupt you briefly yeah, sure. uh, just, yes. just to put that question over to the audience there's what nearly 200 people in the room yeah just tell us respond to the tweets that essentially have the spaces on tell us would you actually pay for content and if so what kind because we do see for example mm. like with, with edgar barry when he reaches out to his audience and says hey guys if, if you like the content you're seeing here if you'd like to support us here's the mpesa number and plenty of people coming in and consuming his content it's not a huge audience so the willingness to pay is there the question is i guess how much what what and how much so i primarily feel kenyans are willing to pay for content but you really have to deliver on what kind of content is it, right? The quality of the content I think that Kenyans are willing to pay for has to be higher than what's available for free. Now, I'm going to repeat that because it took me close to four months to figure it out. The quality of the content that Kenyans are willing to pay for has to be higher or better than what's available for free, okay? There are people who are willing and they'll pay top dollar just to get richer content. So as media houses and anyone in general who's creating content, how much work are you willing to go into to find out what exactly are my customers looking for? I give an example. I wish I could write like uh, Baraza, the gentleman who talks about cars. I am certain that if his audience was asked to pay for that specific content or possibly video subscriptions for car reviews, Kenyan men will pay for it. So it's really about how accessible is the content. If it's extremely extensive, and that's why Kenyans say, I'm not going to subscribe or subscribe to a paywall because I found the news on Twitter for free, right? But it's really about, okay, what's the depth? How deep are you willing to go to give them better content that they'll say, okay, you're asking me for 10 bob or 50 bob, I'm willing to pay. I hope I've answered that question. It's an ongoing question that we essentially are still, we're all trying to find different answers for it. But Rosebell, let's come to your specific vertical. And what I have in mind here is the work that you're doing over at African Feminism. How are you dealing with the money question? Because as we all know, journalism isn't free, but the how do we make this work question is, has a very different answer in New York, in Johannesburg, in Nairobi, and it has a very different answer, likely, in Kampala. Thank you so much. I would like to build a bit on what Claire asked, the incentive of someone paying for your content. People have money. Africans have money, no matter what image has been put out. If people can pay a millionaire musician asking for money casually online, we have seen it in Nigeria, in a few hours he has a lot of money. How do we even tap into what people want. I, I look at the content my media gives me, even the media I follow in Kenya. Is this the kind of content I want to pay for? Most likely not. I, am I going to pay for the same old regurgitated voices? Even when Claire talks about something like Netflix, what we are paying for, we are only paying it because it has increased the investment in the content that we would want to see, black voices, African voices. Otherwise, nobody's going to be paying to listen to the same old white men voices for Netflix. So they know that. So we need to also think about the content in terms of our media spaces. What is new? An average age in African countries, all our countries, is 19 years old. What does a 19-year-old want to listen to, watch on TV, uh, read in the newspaper? And how do we make that content that speaks to that diversity and stop thinking 
thing, the old way of like we are older people running the show, you know, basically mimicking how our countries are run. We need to go beyond that. We need to, to really speak to the realities and include uh, in terms of who is creating content, the conversation, the young people need to be in part of our newsrooms and really come to the table and create that content that we want to then send out. I think it's it would work like that. Also, there's been, you asked me specifically platforms, alternative platforms like African feminism, why I'm talking about diversity, what I learned is that people come to the platform because they don't find the kind of analysis, the stories, they don't see themselves in the mainstream. So they are looking for, it's women, it's queer people, queer Africans, they are looking for analysis that speaks to their realities. And we are not as mainstream media, if you work in the mainstream media, we are falling short on that. So they are going to all these alternative platforms, whether African feminism, whether places like Africa is a country, platforms, we are seeing good platforms coming up like the continent. But but these are all alternatives and, and it's difficult to run them. But you have different parts Partnerships. We have seen a lot of foundations and, and different ventures interested in actually in the media landscape because the reality is that we can have alternative media, but as long as we don't have a media that can actually fairly and cover certain narratives on the continent, set the narratives and be trusted the way you see the rise of Arab media like the Al Jazeera's of this world, if we don't have that on the continent, we are still in our little chambers trying to produce for East Africa, then West Africa, you know, I'm currently in the car. So it's very difficult. We need a media, but at the same time, we need to learn from what other alternative platforms are creating and why they are creating those platforms and what is let not me, let available. Let me just interrupt you briefly there, Rosemary, because there's something interesting you raised there about the question of getting cash in from foundations that are interested in funding content or rather the production of content for audiences here. But that's not really sustainable in the long run, though, is it? Because if, if you have a funding program the last three years, four years, um, after that, then what? Right. But And at the same time, there's a question that will always emerge of, yeah, we're funding these things now, but yep. do we have the freedom to tell our stories the way we would like to tell them? Exactly. But would you have the freedom now when we look at the media ownership? It's a very core question we must interrogate. So whoever you're dealing with, you have to negotiate your freedom. Right now, we have very commercial media. They don't care very much about the interests of who is not heard. If you're not like an old man in your 40s, you're almost likely not to appear on our TV stations in Kenya, Uganda, wherever. I choose any African country and watch the TV, watch the voices in the media. Who is there? And I'm giving you that demographic graphics of a 19-year-old. But at the same time, I'm telling you, a, a millionaire musician, Davido, has paid a mi millions of money in one hour for him asking. Africans have money. They can invest in that, apart from the foundations. So I think that in certain foundations, you could get that as an investment. Because as we see, you're not going to go anywhere without investing fast also, in many ways. We, you have to take that risk. What is the risk? But somebody must know what they are risking, what they are tapping into. What kind of future of a generation in terms of creating content that we see that the generation needs right now and, and how that is going to pay back. It's going to be a risk, but it needs to be taken. Indeed, it certainly does. Um, just a bit of context on the money question uh, for, for our audience, for our 200 plus listeners on the space at the moment. If you use, say, the largest media house in Eastern and Central Africa, that's Nation Media Group, if you look at their revenues, they basically topped out in 2013. That's a while back. That's nearly 10 years ago. So when you know, Claire's saying that we should have started this whole journey of essentially becoming digital first uh, media operators a decade ago, 
that sort of frames the context uh, that we operate in. Wandala, let me bring you into something else that John Allen probably alluded to a little earlier when we started this space. We're getting into a space where what might work is not 100% clear. We're experimenting with very different things. Some of those experiments will work. Some of those experiments will not work. How are you dealing with failure? Not just in terms of, okay, this story didn't work, but also at an organizational level saying that, okay, it's okay for us to experiment. Some things may work, some things may not work, but given the social and cultural environment we operate in where failure was, oh my God, you've messed up. We're going to have an absolute nightmare here. How do you deal with failure in your organization? Well, uh, that's, that's quite interesting. It comes down to culture within the organization. So the first thing we really defined is the culture. And one of our cultural aspects is we, we have to adapt and innovate. We encourage failure. So we encourage people to fail and just fail fast. And then the key thing is for the managers to accept that some things just won't happen. And the other key thing also is to understand that with some clients, some projects just won't happen. You won't actually get it right with some of the clients. So the thing that you always do is if things have not gone right, you just sit down, reflect, and then see are there opportunities that you can do better and are there things that you can actually work on that you can improve. But managing failure, I think it also comes down to how the Kenyan or African culture is. Everybody thinks that you have to succeed. You don't have to talk about your failures. But the first thing of dealing with failure is I always encourage the team, just speak about the failure. Speak what it has gone wrong and how it has gone wrong and what you can do to improve. Because it's very important in that regard, especially in the media space, because when you put things out there and when you're engaging with consumers, consumers see and follow and learn that you've actually not gone as expected. So if I can maybe just speak about one project that taught us about failure and how we can fail very fast and learn. It's we run an online football quiz and we run it from 8 p.m. every day. And you, that's our answer to clickbait content because the quiz is about 12 questions, 12 very fast questions, very short. But in the course of this year, we've really failed. We haven't delivered some of the clients who we promised that the, the, the quiz will run off in a certain way or we'd have pressure to grow the numbers. We didn't. But one of the things we learned is that when the consumers give you f- feedback and when the clients give you feedback, you take that what is seen as failure and then you adapt and you come up with better answers. But I think the first thing was just telling the team, yes, this didn't work out, but what can we learn and what can we was, was And it's With respect to, to the client side of it, do you ever come under that, or rather do you get the impression that sometimes clients are really just chasing numbers, chasing numbers. We want to see 10,000 likes on this. We want to see X number of impressions on this particular post. We want to see, I don't know, like 100 uh, or 2,000 likes on this particular post. And if you don't hit that number, regardless of whether or not it's actually useful, constructive engagement, if you don't hit that number, there's a problem. If you don't hit that number, you're killed and you're most likely going to lose that business. So many people fudge numbers, but what we've learned is don't fudge the numbers, just tell the client as it is and provide the client with the solutions and the roadmap. If it doesn't work, just see how you can actually do that. And I think in the media space, there's that pressure to hit numbers. There's a huge amount of pressure to hit numbers. So the best thing that you can actually do is 
to just be honest with the client, tell the client this, but also internally within the team is to look at how you build a culture where you you are honest and then you also build a culture where you learn from such failures. That's the key thing. In fact, the failures have taught us a lot more than the successes. Well, at, at this point, I think we'll probably you know, put out a, a term sheet to all the media houses who are around here um, and give them a bill at the end of the space and tell them, OK, we've been giving you free research. Now you need to essentially pay Mwango Capital for the information you've gathered here and the consumer feedback. Sud, I, I know you wanted to come in on this particular point. Yeah, I mean, I've got a question for, for Wary, and, and, and this is because I've taken a deep dive into Ticini and figure, I'm trying to figure out how they work. And what, what is interesting about Ticini and, and the work that they're doing is they're able to reach a demographic that's almost impossible to reach on, on mainstream media. One, because of the content we just spoke about, but they reach, they're predominantly male, under 25, and mostly in low-income areas. And the interesting thing is where you guys are able to get that, you know, really consistent week in, week out engagement through the quizzes. And this is something not popular in Africa. And you've kind of validated it, at least in Kenya and mostly around Nairobi. But you know, when you talk about your business, you've got the triangle that you talk about where you have, I think, data and, but if you could just expound on that triangle for the benefits of the, of the audience. And you have an engagement model that is is working and you figured out how to engage a very particular niche of, of the audience. So how did you go about it and what are the next steps and what would your advice be now to uh, a bigger media entity in terms of trying to retain an audience and build engagement workflows into their business? So one of the things we noticed about the quizzes, Kenyans don't like quizzes, but they like the quizzes when you put an incentive and the incentive has been cash but then they get to understand and engage with the content. And the other thing is, if you look at our, our society, the EPL is glorified. But there are very interesting cases of the Kenyan football. I know everybody right now is just thinking about corruption in Kenya and everything like that. But when you take a, a tour of Kibira, when you take a tour of Madare, Kenya has some of the best male footballers. And by the way, we have the best women footballers on the continent. So one of the things we realize is people won't read that content unless it's sort of gamified through a quiz. And then there's an incentive to that. So just to go back to what Sud mentioned, at the top of our triangle is the, the quiz. And then the other corners are the content and the events are at the base of the other corners. In the middle of that, every point in our business, we look at everything is data from the data that you collect on the ground, from the data that you run the quiz, from the data that you have the events. And that comes at the center of the triangle. And that forces us now to look at the data and the technology and how do we innovate with the data and technology and then offer solutions which other media houses might be interested. So one of the things that we were looking at is uh, the quiz platform, it's driven by data and it's automated all throughout and all our data is automated all throughout. So that helps now us become more efficient as a media organization and we can sell some of the excess capacities that we have. I don't know how many of you remember here the project Nation Media Hard of Nation Heller. Imagine if Nation Heller was currently ongoing and it was currently up to date. It would have been a very big financial services business for Nation Heller, but I think they are not bold enough to continue with it. So that is the triangle that we have and I think that's the one thing I noticed when I worked in 
nation and uh, standard. They have so many resources, but not all of them are aligned to one thing that comes to efficiency. So because they are big, I think they, they lose a lot of resources. But when you're a small media house, you look at efficiencies everywhere, from the data that you collect, from whatever that you run, and you just look at how do we build on that and how do we monetize each and everything that is coming our way for the benefit of the consumer, first and foremost, and also for the client. And then I think the final thing, Sud, was that with regards to the quiz and the engagement, there are two things. One, we spend a lot of time in these low-income areas just understanding our audiences. The one thing that we realize is that the football consumers too. Yes, they glorify the EPL, but they identify more with the Amtas. So you'd find that the Amta tournaments are packed with people because they idolize their footballers who've risen up the ranks. So how do we now reach those? Because those are consumers and they're always competing with the EPL and other ninis. How do you reach to that consumer? I think then the second thing becomes the quiz just came as a result of innovation. It was during COVID. People were coming in to the house. There was curfew, I think, 8 p.m. There was no football. So we realized, what can we do? So it's a very big challenge for those in the media space. How can we innovate with the little resources that we have? And how do we look at every single thing as a point of innovation. Thanks. Right, we really appreciate it. We're coming up to what, 8.52 p.m. And so far, the conversation has been around our panelists, but now we're essentially opening up uh, the floor to you, our audience, uh, who's been around very patiently for the last hour or so for your input and your questions. Suit, yeah. you can request for a speaking slot and then we'll just queue in as we go along. Uh, so we'll add, remove speakers. The other option to ask the questions is you can DM at Mongo Capital or you can respond to one of the pin tweets and the team will get the questions out and either myself or Rama will, will ask them on your behalf. So the first member of the audience that we are opening the floor to is uh, Karanja. You can go ahead and mute and introduce yourself and ask your question. Hi, thank you for bringing me up. My name is Karanja Gashusha. I am uh, a journalist in the uh, U.S., and I, I, I run my own blogs. I hope to or, or believe that I'm part of the media disruption. And actually, I, I was very much part of media disruption. I'm a former Occupy Wall Street spokesperson, which was, I believe, the very first global disruptor of popular media where we use Twitter uh, specifically, but social media in general, to disrupt major, major international media houses, and we were able to get around international media houses to convey a, a message that I believe changed the political landscape in the United States. And we introduced the moniker of the 1% versus the 99%, which is essentially sort of the idea of bottom-up economics. And my, my question is, it seems like the discussion kind of changed direction into discussing payment for media, for independent media. And I guess I can't help wondering, is that necessarily the case? Isn't ad supported and also an avenue? And we see that that, is, that has been ad supported. It has been the most effective method of growing not just media, but international uh, multinational conglomerates including google facebook this very space that we are on twitter because they are free at the point of consumption to the user but they are supported by ads 
I remember in the early days of the internet, I used to log into, I was actually just trying to pull it up as you called me. I wasn't expecting to be called first. I was trying to pull up Mashad. I think it was, it was Mashada.com. It was a Kenyan platform, which used to be a platform where people used to be, have discussions. I was a member of it. I don't even know if it's still in existence, but it was an amazing platform. But we didn't internationalize it. And other platforms that have been produced in the United States came along after it, way after, and were able to obviously leverage the the platform that just being a business in America gives you to much more effectiveness than what Mashada.com was able to do. So my question is, does it have to be for a fee? Can it not be ad-supported? But the other thing that I wanted to add is it's unfortunate that we look on the outside always rather than supporting businesses made in Africa. And that would have been an amazing platform if it had been pushed and supported by Africans. Okay, I'm going to take that question to to the panel. John Allen, Rosebell, Claire, Wandala, you're welcome to jump in here. Uh, on, because I, I do believe that the, the way this usually is phrased when these arguments come up in the newsroom tends to be, you know, it's ads plus what else? How do we build out that subscription revenue? How do we build out models, for example, that might perhaps allow individuals to pay for just the content they consume and nothing else? But let's hear from the practitioners in the field. John Lannan, Rosebell, Claire, Wandala, whoever wants to go on that question, go ahead. I'd like to go first. I'll try and be quick. It's difficult for any media entity to only rely on advertising revenue, especially if that's only from Google, right? Ideally, it may not even keep the lights on. So you really have to find a balance to say, okay, the advertising revenue is great. And even though with the sales teams, right? What I know about a client, now that I'm a client on the betting side is, we primarily pay for where our audience is. So if we're able to find a justification that my audience, which is primarily your 20-year-old all the way to 45 who's willing to spend $3 a day to place a bet. If an advertiser can demonstrate that on their platform, I'm willing to buy. But it's just not enough. So I just just think that there has to be a balance with, you know, paywalls and paywall subscriptions. And the idea is just really about leveraging that customer data to just first understand who you're talking to and what do they need. Spend some time to use big data analytics or even something as simple as focus groups to just experiment and ask, what are you willing to pay for? But there has to be a balance. I'm of the opinion that it can't just be advertising revenue. It would not be sustainable. Indeed. I have gotten some interesting feedback here from what Dangam are doing. He's in the room at the moment. He's a Mozilla fellow. Did some pretty fascinating work with respect to the artificially generated conversations, essentially, that were coming up in the wake of the Pandora Papers. So we'll talk about astroturfing with him a little later once we get the mic over to him. But Claire, just to follow up on that particular point, walk us through your thought process when you're looking to buy space to get to your audience. Because if you're having this conversation in, say, 2005, right, the media buying options would be relatively straightforward. It would be, I know what the rate cards for ads on Nation newspaper are. I know what the rate cards for KTM Primetime are. I know what the rate cards for uh, a morning slot on, say, KISS or Classic or Nation FM would be. But today, in addition to all of that, 
you also have influencers on Instagram. You've got these hugely popular pages on Facebook, Wanderlust Diaries, perhaps, that essentially perhaps serve almost a comparable role to what Karanja was talking about with what Mashada.com used to be like, a place where people hang out and talk about specific issues that they're very interested in. In your assessment, based on what you're doing now, what, what grabs a bigger share of your ad budget comparing traditional legacy media to these emerging uh, spaces, Instagram, Facebook, and so on? And more importantly, why? Okay. So here's the thing. Ideally, it first starts from what the current trends are. I really leverage on a lot of data that, and Ipsos do this really well about what's the consumption landscape in the country. And so far, uh, especially after COVID, digital is clearly second to radio. So radio is still a big part of what Kenyans consume. So then when I'm looking for, okay, I need to reach this customer, I need to check for my audience, which is primarily 18 to 40 year old, where are they across the country and what exactly are they listening to? For where we are right now at betting, I guarantee you number one is still Facebook after radio. So radio takes the cake and just numbers, for every one TV in Kenya, there are possibly five more radio sets in every household. So radio is still king, but second after that is Facebook. If I'm not wrong, they're just about to hit their 12 million user mark in Kenya. If you just think about it on a large scale, a, a marketer or somebody who's looking for an audience will just find out where are they spending time right now. We also just don't rely on the big research. We ask them, we'll send them questions and just ask, tell me, what do you do? Who do you listen to? We recently just concluded a research group and I was pleasantly surprised that most of my customers seem to be very intrigued and they follow micro-influencers, especially micro-influencers from the region. So I know, yes, we see Nairobi here, but if you think there are Instagram stars all the way in Kisumu, Kakamega, and Kisi. So it's very interesting. Just listen to the customer. They'll absolutely tell you where to go. I'm, I'm really tempted to explore that micro-influencers uh, line of argument, but I'll come back to that a little later. Uh, I know we have Edward Moyobo on the room as well. You've got the mic, Edward. What would you like to ask? My quick question in the sense of media disruption in Africa, it comes in the notice of what happened in Uganda recently. I don't know much about the scene in which one place, but the idea I'm trying to ask is the idea of jihadist. So my question is, in the sense of media, how is the concise of getting that problem under control, or in the sense, putting it forward towards the people in Africa to pay attention to how to prevent such things? How do you think uh, the media is going to do so? My simple question is, how is the media going to deal with the idea of jihadist in Africa. Okay, just to clarify on that, when you speak about jihadists, are you speaking about specifically Islamic jihadists or are we talking about just extreme content in general? Yeah, we're speaking the idea of suicide bombing, but that's end game when I say jihadist. Okay, all right, fair enough. We'll put that over to the panel. Rosebell, do you want to take on this? Yeah, thank you. I think it's a bit general, but there are certain aspects uh, to how the media covers uh, violent extremism in the era where the digital, the news moves fast, you know. But also we must remember that this is nothing new. 
Uganda has been hit by jihadists before, and Uganda has had long rebellions running in the country. So in many ways, the media has done good work in terms of coverage of those incidents. But at the same time, uh, we are living in a time where you can easily see it was terrible. Last few days, you log on to your Twitter feed and a couple of people were sharing images of the people who had died in the twin explosions in Kampala. But I think that on the role, the media challenge in covering violent extremism is the fact that when you're covering violent extremism in a context of a dictatorship, then whose information are you going to go with? You'll go with the police information, but at the same time, you know from history, from unresolved cases, that the government, the state infrastructure, that the state violence has been high. As we talk, the, the explosion happened on the one-year anniversary when our military massacred over 50 people last year in November. So you are really between uh, Rook and the hard place, and we are living in times where we tend to put violent extremism or Islamist extremism at a higher note than actually when we look at our own state violence. So definitely the media finds itself in between those two and who do you trust? Of course, that's more of a long-term conversation in terms of the sources. Um, right now they've killed Ashay. They claim that he was resisting arrest. Who's, what do you go with? How do you continue to show that the person killed is a suspect? you know, was suspected terrorists, not charged, not tried. Those words are very important whom you give credence in when you're covering a violent extremism. You remember that the state also has state violence. So at the same time, you're not going wholly um, with what the state is saying, but it is very difficult. It requires verification. It requires to respect certain language, to respect the suspect is a suspect, to also follow up on incidents of violent Islamophobia by our state. B between Kenya and Uganda, this is a, the reality of many Muslims living in fear after every other explosion. So it's not just about the terrorists themselves and the scene of the crime, but really more in how the media can, in these times, digital times, make sure that we respect the objectivity and making sure that we are not overriding with, with what the state officials are saying. I think that's all I can say to that. Indeed. And just a quick reminder to all our listeners, um, especially for coming in with a specific question, keep it tight, keep it compact. There's quite a bit of content that we'd like to get through in the course of the space. Claire, let's get back to this thesis that you had, micro-influencers, because one of the one, one interesting line of thought that we've had, at least over the last decade or so, is essentially that, look, media houses in the past will no longer look like what they might actually eventually evolve to be, where it might actually essentially act like a sort of holding company for a collection of very focused, very niche verticals that do really, really well in their specific spaces and simply share common spaces behind them. What do you think? Please, could you repeat that for me again, the last part? Yeah, so media houses might essentially, at least by one line of thought, media houses of the future might essentially become a holding company where instead of, you know, you have X number of newspapers all doing roughly the same thing, like say the way you have, you buy the Daily Nation and you've got a section that deals with sports, current affairs, county news, business. So instead of all of that, you have one specific vertical. This is only dealing with national news and that's it. Then we have, say, Rosebell's content from Afrifeminist. That's a separate vertical. We have Wandala's very hyper-focused, data-specific, data-driven content on football. 
that's a different vertical because that essentially would seem to be the logical end of all these micro influencers exploding and becoming the next big thing in our space. I agree with you. So what's happening with these micro influencers, they seem to be giving out a need that others can't. I'll just give an example of my nanny. She watches this YouTube channel for a guy. I don't know the name, but I know it's Kenyans in the diaspora. Right? It's largely interviews in Kikuyu, just talking about your journey. When I look about at how much time she spends on that, and she was primarily a citizen TV consumer, she'd She'd watch all the soaps there back to back Monday to Friday. But now she's grossing close to four hours a day on that channel. And when I ask her, why do you watch this? Guys, she says, but traditional media will never do that. Citizen, how I tell you on your share story. It sounds really mundane or very simple, but micro-influencers are really giving big businesses a run for their money because they're answering a need. If your consumer really just wants moshene.com, right? give that if consumers really just want entertainment or news about p square or davido i don't know who fighting give that but what i genuinely see i worry for big media houses who are not looking at these micro influencers i'd say if i was in nation media groups or standard media group right now i'd I'd probably be galvanizing people to buy these influencers. I was looking at the other day. I don't want to call him a micro-influencer. So Jalango is a macro-influencer. But to get somebody who's getting views of around 200,000 views per episode, I can guarantee you that there are some shows on local TV stations that don't even scrap that number on the geopole. So I agree with you. It's going to get to a place where people have to get these micro-influencers, but not just watching them, bring them on board and work with them, but don't change how they operate. Just agree on a revenue share, right? But don't change how they operate because once you do, you start messing up with the mix of what they've already figured out, which is they're giving the consumer what they want faster and quicker. I cannot imagine a big media house being able to meet um, a need that a micro-influencer is already resolving for their audience. Indeed. Uh, there's an interesting question that's come up, or rather comment slash question, and we're going to hear in response to some of the tweets that we put up. So who's innovating on radio if it is still king? Key question. We'll come back to that uh, a little later. Kimutai, you have the mic. Thank you. Claire just touched on something that I'd been thinking about for quite some time. There's a young lady called uh, Mungai. She's on YouTube and she gets hundreds of thousands of views. And it is your run-of-the-mill gutter garbage. Who was fighting who? What drama went where with uh, celebrities? Blah, blah, blah. Which is, it is a completely ignored market because part of the problem is that the media houses specifically cater to an upper-middle-class niche of the market while ignoring most of the country who speak Shang more fluently than they speak Swahili or English. But mine was a, a combination question comment. The comment being, I think a new business paradigm shift needs to happen in a business model sense. We move away from wanting advertisers to more a subscription model. Because when we look at Netflix and even your software, everyone is moving to a pay-as-you-go model. I believe Kenyans would be more than willing to pay 10 bob, 20 bob, 100 bob a month to get great content. However, the platform that we are consuming our media is overlaid 
with a, a well-established sense of algorithmic racism, which is that the algorithm itself is racist, but because the society tend, is skewed towards a specific demographic, it tends to feed you more of what is mostly consumed. And my question is, is it time for Kenyans to have their own platform? And this is what the media houses can spearhead or any individual. Is it right. time for there to be a subscription model that will have space for the Eve guys of the world, that will okay. have space for uh, the Udaku King? Okay, cool. Fair enough. So a couple of interesting things there. The question of building out a media model, essentially, that would cater for those specific niche markets, as it were. But also an interesting point that you raised there. How do these algorithms essentially curate the content that is available and spread that out to the target audiences that we have in mind? I'm going to take another question immediately after this, then we'll come back to that. Enjoy, Doreen Bira. The mic is yours. Thanks a lot for the space. It's really amazing to have these conversations going And I'm always of the view, and I've always been of the view, and probably John Allen and some of the other guys who are on the space that I've worked with in the different media houses, KTN being one of them, can bear me witness that the transition of technology by our media houses, honestly, is snail-paced. So when you look at how the transition has happened, And let's say we'd look at the pandemic as the reason that most of our local mainstream media houses have had like a jumpstart sort of situation going on, that they've had to now think fast and upskill, upgrade, transition faster than they would have. But before, if I could date back to, I think, the times when just basic platforms had just come up, like Skype, I mean, having to convince management that Skype can be a platform that can be used to speak to interviewees from around the world. It took quite a bit of, you know, let's try it and see. Then we had the Google Hangouts, for instance, and same story. But what I want to say is that technology is an experience. Same way you would buy a cell phone today. And maybe after six months, you don't like the experience. You'd want to transition to something else, a different model a different software, maybe before you were using Android, now you want to use iOS. That's just how technology is. Media houses need to figure out how they can fit in these technology disruptions that are coming up now and again. I mean, Twitter is experimenting with spaces as it did with the Twitter fleets. Before we know it, they could just wake up one day and say there'll be no more Twitter spaces. So The time that people have used the Twitter spaces for, and some have even gone ahead to monetize them, I honestly have not seen a single mainstream media house in Kenya that is specifically using Twitter spaces to speak to their audiences. And that which, is ir- which is ironic, isn't it? Because yeah, you have a lot of talent exactly. uh, on radio that would essentially translate really, really well into spaces, but it's not being utilized. Absolutely. And even monetize these spaces for the time that they are here. So it does say something about how they take a wait and see approach before they finally make a decision. And I don't know if that has something to do with the uh, management, but I guess it does. And then the media before and after technology was and still is being driven by eyeballs and ratings. 
So these are what determine their revenue attractiveness and monetization options. So if you look at that, I mean, it's just the same story. How long they took to even get onto YouTube. It's the same trend, really, with all the other technology options. So where I think that we're losing it is on wanting to operate as tabloids or blogs, while at the same time expecting to maintain the same authoritativeness as before. So something needs to shift. There needs to be like a drastic shift onto how they need to remain relevant amid the technology disruptions. All right, cool. And, and Claire certainly agrees with you. James, JJ Mbogwe is also uh, on the call and he's put in a bit of work in building out these platforms. But I just want to go quickly to some interesting commentary that's going on on the Twitter timeline. I believe this is called Tusker, who's pointing out that, look, in a market where, where, where consumers love to share the passwords to, to Netflix accounts and Amazon Prime accounts and so on and so forth, how do you make a compelling argument for people to actually sit down and pay for content, to which uh, I believe this is Akuta Media who responded and said, well, if people can come together and contribute and share a password, that essentially suggests that there's demand for sort of group package option that's available among media houses. We'll cover that in a bit. James, do you want to come in on this? Yes. Hi, Rama, how are you? All good. All good. Talk to me. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Actually, I only wanted to write on, uh, piggyback on Edward had asked, and maybe you kind of alluded to it, expanded on it. And I wanted to ask about disinformation or misinformation, because quite a lot of resources are being put towards combating disinformation on the net or on social media. And I'm wondering, how is this disinformation or misinformation content uh, going so viral? Because it seems to me like a lot of media content creators, this is the sort of uh, reach or virality they would actually want. So has anybody actually looked into what are the characteristics of the content that <clears throat> is being characterized as misinformation or fake news and how it is spreading so fast. And probably related to that is what sort of research is, because um, when you think about even people like Cam- Cambridge Analytica and many of these other political operatives on the net, it seems to me they're doing a lot of research, especially psychological research, research into behavior, influences and that, that sort of thing. And I'm wondering, our media houses, how scientific is the research that they are doing into their audiences? Because if uh, these guys can actually dedicate these sort of resources and have this sort of reach, it seems to me maybe that is where um, they should be also dedicating their resources. Maybe lastly, also, the other thing I also wanted to mention is that I think we are largely dealing online when you're talking about the some of these younger demographics. You know, we are sort of looking at media on the go. Eh? <clears throat> it is not like I see a subscription model like Netflix where you sit down and dedicate like an hour or two to watch a show. A lot of this is just guys looking at one minute videos on TikTok and then interacting after that, you know, just chatting. Maybe we need to also start thinking about bite-sized content, which is that somebody sitting in a meeting waiting for the next speaker to come on can actually consume that and maybe interact with it and not really start doing big productions that take so much time and probably get a fraction of the audience so essentially like like content for gen z's for essentially 60 yeah, like, yeah it seems like media on the go like whenever i can whip up my, my phone maybe i'm in a matatu or i'm waiting for the lecturer to come in, in class or i'm bored like you take it out and you consume that content but you don't have that time to sit down and like watch a right. 20 minute video okay so it, it's an interesting question that, that james is posing here because 
more often than not, we, we tend to, to, to look at disinformation ops. And I really was hoping that Odango is still in the room to help us out with this because he's done a lot of work on disinformation uh, campaigns online. It is a valid point. How do we flip the question on its head and ask, what can we learn from disinformation operations? Rosebell, Claire, do you want to come in on this? I struggle with this a lot, especially with the onset of COVID. I think because it leverages on a lot of our human behavior. As I think of somebody, if there was just to tell you a story and say, you know, keep this a secret, and then you don't keep it a secret, and then you tell five people, and then those five people tell ten people. In the same way that you see guys giving content to Edgar Barry, right? and then they say, Tupa Idima uh, So it's an inherent nature that we are naturally shared. But then I think it's just really about a lot of information overload also just helps these fake news spread and you know social media there's one i was asking my father when he was literally in his 20s right was there this kind of moshene or just fake misinformation he said there was it's just that there were no mobile phones to quantify it it really just illustrates a minefield of cognitive biases and we prefer information yes from people we trust or in our group so if somebody i think that i trust then shares something that's not true and i shared it what was my role in that or do i just blame that specific person so i can say i don't have an answer all i know is as long as we have the modern technologies, we will continue seeing an amplification of these biases in very harmful ways. I know, for example, like such engines also have inflamed these suspicions. I know, for example, Google and Instagram are really trying to put in moderators who are verifying this context. But as long as we have this mobile phone and the access to the internet, I, I I don't see it ending. So it's really then just as a media house, how then do you position yourself as the source of truth? How do you ensure that your fact-checking does not entirely limit your speed to execute so that you're also not losing out on the news waves? I'd like to hear from the rest of the panelists, though. Indeed, and of course, I, I should point out that quite a few veteran journalists as well who are in the room with us. So it'd be interesting to see if they want to chip in uh, on that particular question. I think it's very important to understand that uh, disinformation and its purpose is harm and also in many cases to gain whether financial or political or social capital over another person. So we see that uh, the generators of disinformation includes governments, you know, includes government allied, you know, people and it could be individuals, but most times it's also an organized thing, right? It's not just about as long as social media has it or people have existed. We need to understand how actually people are organizing in a way to influence how the perception of the world, of the people. So the, the media must understand that these kinds of trajectories that are happening, the, the trends that we're seeing. In Uganda, we were cut off Facebook because Facebook actually deleted accounts online to the government during the election, which was spreading fake information against opposition and different people. So it's very important to understand the role, how do we hold accountable. If we don't understand how this information is a very well organized, not some innocent thing, it's a very well organized in many cases, and the actors there and how to investigate that kind of disinformation. And then, for example, WhatsApp audio becomes a very also difficult to kind of hold accountable because you wake up and you find some voice 
because you're like, oh, you spread a rumor. But we need to understand more than spreading who generates this, who benefits from it. So the media must understand that nexus of who is producing that disinformation because it is intentional. It is not some kind of uh, uh, mistake. It is intended to skew uh, people's understanding. And the media is very important not to spread that rumor, but also to understand how to stop it. Thank you. Are media houses, in your view, Rosebell, are media houses losing that arms race? Because governments seem to be very focused in building out the skills uh, involved in spreading misinformation all over the place. They've built out the tech and the talent for it. But as media houses, are we prepared to spot it? Are we able to see it? And are we able to counter it? In real time. We've been talking about how media houses are really behind digitally is very important, but I think even curbing this is already ingrained in journalistic values, right? So we just need to build on old journalistic values, but with the mindset of the digital on how verification, like Claire has talked about verification, but also to know that governments are part of this. We are in this kind of hierarchical thinking often to think that you go to the government, what they say is efficient, what they say is the what carries the day but we have seen that the governments are, and government aligned people are behind mass disinformation so it's very important to know that how all the propaganda basically that the media must be very wary of giving what is used as officialdom as a mask to really be carrying out what the government wants what people want to hear but really step back and push back don't just spread what the governments are saying i'm not saying it's only government there are many other actors there are many organized groups when you see terrorism groups in Uganda, we have a lot of, right now, threats, people uh, spreading fake alerts. It's very important, but also to know that where, where you have situations where governments cannot be trusted, where there's a gap between trust between citizens and, and the government, that the media must play an important role. I don't know if we are very ready for that, but I think it's a conversation and it's a skill that needs to be um, imparted. Thank you. Indeed. Yeah, I think yeah, Rosebell has raised a very important point, the role of state actors and non-state actors now in, in terms of the sophistication of disinformation campaigns. And, you know, you used to see this in controlled states where propaganda machinery was very tight. And what that has evolved to now is it's being algorithmically controlled. And it's not only state actors and non-state actors, but I think in recent times, especially in, in democracies, especially over the last uh, decade, is political actors are actually the biggest culprits in disinformation campaigns. There's usually that line that you have to draw is like, okay, at what point does it become disinformation and what point is it is it campaigning? And if you take a look at you know, the US politics and the techniques that Trump was using, and so the common judgment in terms of saying, hey, Trump or people close to Trump were perpetuators of disinformation or misinformation. But then again, they use the same tools that the Obama team kind of propelled. And the difference now is Obama used it for voter inclusion and then Trump used it for dissuading voters or voter seclusion. And at what point then does it become uh, kosher? But, you know, these, these are critical questions. Now, if, one of the, if the world's most powerful democracy is grappling with it and they're grappling with how to control Facebook and social media and the political class have pretty much been somewhat sleeping on the job. And then for us as African states and our fledgling democracies, how much do we have to catch up, especially on the media fronts, to be aware of all the sophistication that's happening out there? Because it takes a very specific skill set. Yes, 
journalistic etiquette and everything else. We can always build up on that. But there's a certain skill set that now you have to start playing on, on the digital realms to be able to figure out, okay, what are these nuances that are being played on by different actors, both state and non-state? Indeed. There's a couple of questions that are still coming in, and I'll get to that, especially with respect to how we can prepare, for lack of a better word, here in Kenya, given that we have an election taking place in another, what, nine, ten months? And that's relatively close by. So we'll get to that in a moment. But where I want to come to you on, on a question I was going to ask a little earlier. Podcasts. Because you've built out this very data-specific, data-driven operation at your place. But do you think podcasts have a place in there in terms of providing more of the content that uh, your audience would want, but in a different format? Yes, they do. They have a very big space. Maybe I can borrow uh, something from Claire. And I think somebody also asked who's disrupting the radio. We need to find a way of making the podcast very... Kenyan or very local and they relate to what Wamta, then now we'll be able to have the podcast really take off. So yeah, that's one area of experimenting because, uh, okay, in my opinion, I think the podcast right now, how we are looking at them, it's sort of niche, middle class, high income, but the, when we're able to crack how we get the podcast to the low income guys, that will see them now blow off. That will see them now really take off. Indeed, and that localization um, line is interesting to me. Based on what you see um, among your audience, the guys who come to your site, how would it make sense to customize content for them? Is it just a language issue? Is it a presentation issue? Should I have a podcast, you know, like a five, five minutes too long for that audience, whereas five minutes might be too short for another one? Should the content be in Shang? Should it be in English? Walk us through your thought process there. I think it should be in, in Sheng to start off with. I, was, I used to fight Sheng, but I realized with the audience, you have to speak in a language they understand. So Sheng marks seven minutes and you're telling them something that they wouldn't be able to get anywhere else. You're giving them insights, which they can now go and share with their friends. That's what I'd really have for them. And then you find a way of distributing on the mobile phone. Okay, so essentially, like, put it up on WhatsApp. Because, I mean, the virality of content on WhatsApp is essentially, you know, we, we talk about how information spreads, you know, like wildfire on, on WhatsApp. So, and the continent has used this to fantastic effect, distributing their content, I think the weekly publication, every week on WhatsApp. So perhaps that will be the, the first vector uh, to get the content out. Yes, I think uh, keeping it simple is the beauty. And instead of thinking of, investing so much in other technology things. Just use what's existing and WhatsApp is really big. All right, that, that's pretty good. Oh, a lot more questions coming in now. So Ian Wonga, I believe your question has been answered there. So this next one is to a combination of Sood, Joy Doreen Vera, Manjala, please also weigh in on this, and, and Rosebell, partly because Uganda had an election fairly recently, but Kenya is moving into an election in another nine, 10 months. What do we need to do here to prepare not just as media houses, but also prepare our readers as well for the flood of information that's going to be coming through between now and when the votes are cast. Rosebell, do you want to jump in on that? I can just start, and maybe the other panelists can chip in. From how I've seen is we need to, to report things on the ground. I don't know how many media houses can deploy people to actually go on the ground and report how things are. Because then you'd be passing on the real information from what's happening on the ground. I find 
there's a lot of high level reporting and it's not reflective of what's actually happening on the ground and giving a very objective view so for me i'd really put more boots on the ground and get the first hand reporting and that brings us back to the question around funding though doesn't it because the question if the instant we always have this conversation around election time and it's always okay but who's going to pay for all of those people that we have to put on the ground right i i think the learning from the last two years of the pandemic and how when we are all grounded somewhere is very important in terms of how media houses then looked at the digital as the place where you could actually speak to people even if they're in their home. And this is uh, saying this with hindsight in terms of the past uh, the elections, how they've looked like. In Uganda, of course, the last election was done in the darkness. We were cut off all internet was cut off in the country. We didn't know what was going on. We were just watching TV, basically, and whatever the TV could get was what we relied on. It was very scary because I don't remember a time in the last 20 years where I had to only rely on the media as the place where I could watch anything in the country. It was one of those bizarre moments where you feel like, is there a coup? Is there something in the media houses? They were giving very only official results, you know, there was nothing dissenting much. So it's very different. It's very important to prepare. I know in Kenya is a different terrain in terms of internet cutoff, but it could be any other incident. It could be a place where there's violence. How do you actually in these digital times verify information, which will be very running in places where maybe a journalist can't even reach. We need to learn from history, from how have we covered the past elections, but also knowing that the digital gives a much more challenge if you cannot as a journalist reach a certain area in Kenya in the, in case of anything. In Uganda it was massive police mobilization and, and militarism and plus the internet cut off. But in Kenya's context it could be something else. So it's very important to know building on the, on the histories of how past elections have been but also knowing that it's going to be digital, you could get information. How do you verify that? Do you have desks that will be able to verify anything, knowing how to go on the internet and uh, not miss the voices, but at the same time, no, not fall into the trap of uh, giving unverified content and not at the same time, not being just vulnerable to be reliant on the state which we know that in very many contested elections, the state's machinery is hijacked. So as a journalist, you need to rely on so many different sources that are not state officials. So there has to be a serious investment in an information verification ability that media houses need to start building now in advance of an election. Absolutely, if you're going to stand up with a challenge. Thank you. You know, the, the cases where it can be done in a coordinated and distributed way where the media houses actually collaborate, whether it's through their associations or some sort of partnerships. You see, the media traditionally are the fourth estate. And when, we, when it comes to elections and choosing leaders and, you know, participative democracies or participative forms of government, there is that moral obligation. And if resources can be shared for the greater good of a society or a country, and there are cases where journalists kind of do come together in arms to support each other. And I think elections are one of those situations. And if it can be done in a transparent way and in an objective way, I think that's the way forward. Because if what is happening in terms of the sophistication of misinformation, it's ridiculously difficult to get on top of it unless you have some sort of united front end and information and data is shared freely across and 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 this is one of the instances where commercial objectives need to be deprioritized 
for the greater uh, objectives also. Yeah, indeed, I, I fully agree with that. I don't think I actually see any media managers in the house at the moment. But that idea of essentially putting a collective election desk that handles coverage, especially if it comes down, because I know the, the context in which it's been explored in the past has been on having making sure that we have as wide as possible coverage on polling stations. Do we have a reporter virtually at every single polling station that can essentially feed data back into a central point where all media houses can essentially get that information? That's a context in which I know that idea has been explored in the past. Has it actually worked? Eh, not quite. We still have a fair bit of work to do in breaking down the barriers of seeing ourselves as collaborators as opposed to being competitors 24-7, even at a time when you've got an election going on. We're now fast approaching 9.45, so I do need to bring this to a close. Can I say something just before you bring it to a close? <laughs> All right. And I agree with Rosbell and as well as what you're saying, that there needs to be verification, because if we're going to look at the last election and some of the challenges that were experienced by the last election, I'm talking about the Kenyan election, there was a lot of misinformation that was going around. And so it's really important to have these verification desks, possibly double verification, because at the end of it all, it, it's going to determine how the audience reacts to issues to do with authoritativeness, with trust, and all that. You talked about having a reporter at all polling stations. <laughs> Let's not lie to ourselves that while we have an election desk, usually during election time, it's always an issue of resource allocation. And what happened in the last election is that they were trying as much as they could to use a citizen reporting to get a verification from different polling stations and tally it with what they were receiving at the election desks. So I think what now can be done possibly without losing the authoritativeness is for media houses to also see if they can partner with organizations that lo are looking to fund media houses that can now spread out their technologies and their resources in terms of contributing towards like free and fair elections. So that way they're able to now say, okay, we have a budget for this, we have a budget for that, but otherwise that resource issue is a really big issue in mainstream media houses. So that needs to be worked out to ensure free and fair reporting. Okay, Kusoko is also um, on the line. Um, let's get to you. So you go first, then Kusoko, and then we'll get around to the close. This was just uh, food for thought, uh, and, uh, building up what Joy Dua is saying. Maybe media houses should really think who are their competitors. Because that, that is changing in this new digital world. So are they better off collaborating to have better coverage and better content? I think, yeah, but the mindset is usually nation is com defined standard as a competitor. But I think what one thing that we're learning is your competition might actually be something different that will come and disrupt you. And should we even be thinking about competition at a time when we're talking about a matter of public good? I mean, an election, it's a pretty big deal. Should we be thinking about competition in that point? No. Fair enough. Kusoko, you have the mic at the moment. Please introduce yourself. Tell us what you do. Thank you, Rama. And thank you to all the other participants who are on this call on media disruption in Africa. Kusoko is just an online digital platform that covers the East African markets, business analysis, financials, and anything to do with entrepreneurship and the property markets. And the reason why I'm speaking is just 
I had shared with you, Rama, something on your DM that regardless of how we advance in terms of media, in terms of technology, how far it dis- disrupts the way we do our work, at the end of the day, the bottom line comes into we, the journalists. How do we package the story that reaches our target audience? No matter what kind of platform we use, be it YouTube, be it text, be it audio, whichever platform, at the end of the day, what matters is how do we package it? Because in media we believe in, are people or are our consumers able to trust the information that we give? Rama, I know you work or you contribute to the Bloomberg platform. And Bloomberg adopts a 360 kind of way in which they disseminate the information. There's the text, there's the video, and there's the audio. And although it's on a paywall platform, but people are your consumers, whichever platform that they use, are they able to trust whatever kind of information that they consume based on how you have packaged it, how you have sourced for it? That is the bottom line, regardless of how we advance, no matter how even how people say they get information through their social media platform. Right. At the end of the day, there's that platform whereby they'll still go and read it. So at the end of the day, so at the end we of the day let's focus on, on our first principles. Is it accurate? Was it properly produced? Was it fairly representing, uh, fairly and accurately representing the facts on the ground? If you get those right, regardless of the format, the audience will come. That is precisely what I'm speaking about. Thank you, Rama. I'm now going to move on to, to closing comments. We've been running for the better part of two hours this evening. I'm going to start with closing comments, starting with you, Rosebell. Interesting conversations over the last two hours. If there's one key thing that we need to take away from this conversation, what should it be? One key thing is collaboration. If you're going to really deliver a kind of media that is going to survive in this time. Collaboration is very important in knowing and learning from the mistakes of others and learning from the success of what's happening elsewhere. Claire, I'm going to bend the rules a little bit with, with my question to you for your closing comments. This is actually coming out of some of the questions that uh, were submitted for us, but what would you do differently if you're in charge of any of the traditional media houses? I should possibly go back, but good question. I would primarily focus on saying, you know, if I was at Nation, my former employer or at Standard, building a superior competitive advantage. I actually picked this from uh, Peter Pondo's Amazing at Digital Strategy. A superior competitive advantage, think of the brands that are big, you know, there's Coca-Cola, there's Google. It they do that because it comes from a deep knowledge of understanding what their current audience want and what their future audiences actually possibly want before they know that they need it or even just refining what they're looking for. If we could build a superior competitive advantage and provide a platform that's absolutely amazing to use, intuitive and personalized and at great pricing, consumers will follow. Wanzala Were, you've done some fascinating work based on data, consumers basically telling you, this is what we'd like. These are the triggers that we respond to. These are the incentives we respond to. What's the one key thing we need to take out from this conversation, from your perspective? Being very fast to adapt to change and adapt to the consumer's feedback. And essentially believing the data, constantly looking for the data. Yes. All right. Fair enough. Sood, do you, do you have any closing comments that you'd like to put in? Yeah, I think 
you know, having worked both uh, locally and internationally, especially in the space, is I think the, the key missing bit in Africa, uh, especially in East Africa, the big media houses are very few. And then, you know, there's one particular one that kind of cuts across uh, the region is the copy paste model doesn't quite work, right? So you look at the content that actually makes it on YouTube, at least in terms of popularity, or you look at the emergent TikTokers, is the reason why they, they, they work really well. And, you know, in, in the case of Kenya, it's usually comedy for whatever reason. I don't know whether we're depressed with our government or whatnot, but comedy seems to uh, strike a very good nerve with the Kenyan consumers. Is that element of localization and then localize the content production and localize the content delivery, localize the formats. And I think this thing of a cookie-cutter way of reading the news, presenting the news, and doing this and doing that, yes, you will get a certain segment of the audience, but if you really want to make it mass market, that localization is is key. And I think the, the key points for me outside Kenya is look at Tanzania. Uh, and Tanzanians are really big on social audio. One, they've got a very expressive culture, but they're very big on social audio, kind of both Clubhouse and Twitter and, you know, civil society in Tanzania tends to use alternate media to get the messages across because of whatever problems they have with, with the media house. And I think these institutional problems cut across most of East Africa. But one striking thing that I found, and we've been seeing this for over the last 10 years, you know, from my time at Al Jazeera when you had projects like Somalia Speaks and trying to engage with the Somali audience, is Somalia is a country that doesn't have a state state, you know, a very weak government and because of that is their media scene is one it's creatively disruptive yes it might seem all over the place but you look at somali content on tiktok and they've got this very neat mechanisms of the diaspora interacting with folks back home and you know trying to form out a, a, a very unique somali identity and you know they're really proud about their content they're proud about their culture very expressive and a lot of them have shoestring budgets or you look at Wakaliwood in Uganda, and every now and then they get into these viral videos out of nowhere, kind of, yes, you know, low-quality production and everything else. The production might be low-quality in, in technical terms, but there's no replacement for good content. And the reason why it really works is because it's localized. Or you look at Tanzanian football commentary or Tanzanian YouTube content. Very unique, very different flavor of Tanzanian. If you look at now in terms of arts, culture, and entertainment, and you look at music coming in from... Tanzania or from Nigeria is that element of localization gives it that flavor, gives it identity, and it resonates with the audience and it resonates with the masses. So my closing comments is for all types of content is if we look at it from a local prism, actually the case in point is Mwango Capital. And I have like an insider's view of Mwango Capital because of I'm supposed to be the editorial lead, despite that, I know, I mean, I've worked in media. And, you know, Eric started Mwango Capital from his room about exactly a year ago. And it was him, and he's in Stockholm. And it's like the stuff that I'm not getting about the Kenyan market from Business Daily and from all other publications. And I think because I'm qualified and I've got a CFA, I can do a better job. And then he starts, and then all of a sudden he gets one collaborator and then two collaborators. And then with time, you're like five, and like, okay, fine, maybe we're doing it as a hobby and we can do something out of this. And with time, Wango now has become, you know, one of the leading or at least authoritative sources of business commentary, at least for this part of the world. And, you know, it didn't take a lot. All it took was like, you know, mission, getting the right people and localizing that context and producing for ourselves, eating your own dog food. So I think these things can be done. It can be done by 
small media organizations it can be done by big media organizations we are in an age now where almost every other person is a producer especially if you're looking at gen z and you know this is the generation that is on tiktok and on instagram but there is light at the end of the tunnel and there are ways in which the african narrative can be brought to light and can be owned by africans and it can be monetized it can be sustainable however way you want to play it the opportunity is there I don't think I could find a better way to actually wrap that up. I'd like to send a very big thank you to all the people who've uh, who've spoken. Our key panelists here: John Alanamu, Rose Belkagmiro, and Jalawere. Of course, Claire Santinisana for all your time, and of course to you, our audience, uh, for being here with us, for your views, for challenging orthodoxy, for giving us your feedback on the things that you believe will work, what will not work, and the things we need to explore in the future. You've been on Mango Spaces. Uh, we'll see you in the next one.